He hears every word. The Bible says that one day that we'll give an account even for every idle word and deed. I had someone here with me at the church earlier this week, and he had said something. He's like, ooh, I forgot I'm in church. I looked at him and I said, you act, you act as if he doesn't hear you anywhere else. As if you have to be in his house for him to hear you. He hears you no matter where you use the word. He's like, touche. This morning we're going to look at what some people would call a difficult passage. We're going to look at Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, and it's the second letter, so if you have your Bibles, be turning to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Going to read a pretty long passage and have a lot of other reading to do today. Uh, so I pray that your heart is prepared for God's Word and that you remain attentive. You don't fall asleep on me. It's not me you need to be concerned with. If you don't pay attention, if you lose focus, or even so much as fall asleep, you're doing so to God. And I'd like to remind us all of that. There's a reason we leave our children in the sanctuary for preaching. How else will they learn to respect God's Word? How else will they learn the importance of reverence? We live in a time and a culture now where many American churches split the family up as they enter the door. One age goes here, one age goes there. Things like mentorship of our children is our responsibility as parents, not someone else's. I love in 2 Peter where it talks about how the older women would teach the younger women. But we live in an age where now everybody wants to hang out with somebody their own age. Let me tell you something. You'll never learn anything that way. I find that being with Christians who are more mature than I am helps me to grow, stretches me to think differently and to look deeper into God's Word. God's Word is very clear that the first place of evangelism is in our home. We are to have a personal relationship with God then second would be our marriage, then third would be our family. A lot of preachers cringe when I tell them my ministry is further down on the totem pole than they would think. Because what would it be for me to preach to an entire church full of people and yet my family not be prepared to meet God? You can't make your children worship, but it is your responsibility to teach them. I believe in the verse of Proverbs that says that if we will train a child in the way they should go, that when they get old, they will not depart. That training is about discipling our children. Having those discussions. What better way to teach our children about marriage when they come to that age than the parent? 
The problem is, if you're like me, I've made a lot of mistakes in those areas. And sometimes I feel guilty. But that's the work of the adversary. Making us think that we don't have something to say or, or somehow that that responsibility that falls on our shoulders should go to someone else because I've already messed that area up. What I find is if we're honest about where we messed up, that speaks louder than someone else telling our children. This passage today that we're going to look at is difficult in the sense that it talks about future times. The study of theology is literally the study of God. So when we study our Bible, we are participating in theology, which is the study of God. But there is a specific area of study of future times that's called eschatology. And there are a lot of passages in the Bible that speak to future times. The thing is, is we don't know the time. And what's difficult about this passage, when we start talking about future times today, the big question would come up was, well, when and how is, what's the timeline and what this all, and trust me, you, you start reading about the time, different timelines, it can become a little discouraging. Something happened to turn off? No sound? Ah, it'll... It'll be what it'll be. It is what it is. All right. The study of eschatology is the study of future things. People want to know the timeline. Remember the disciples, when Jesus in Matthew 24 started telling them about the end times, they said, well, how will we know? What will be the signs? And Jesus gave them some general signs. But the simple fact is, is we don't know the hour or the day. And so I can't tell you when the time is. And in certain parts of this study, as we look at it here today, I can't tell you exactly when that's going to occur. Some people even think part of this has already occurred. I don't know. But I will tell you, sometimes we'll shy away from studying the difficult things because sometimes it leaves more questions than we have answers. But it does not mean that we cannot gain from the study of. While I may be even more confused today as, as far as when some of these events have happened or will happen, the simple fact is there are a lot of things that I have learned in this study. And so today, with the help of the Lord, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture, which was a letter sent to the church at Thessalonica by the Apostle Paul. And so in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. I don't know why anybody is sitting at this moment, because you know what comes next. As we stand to honor God in the reading of His Word, we start at verse 1. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of, Lord, day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? 
And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let us pray. Father, as we come to you today, Lord, we are humbled by the depth of your word. Humbled that as we read and feel that we started to get a, a good grasp, we realize that your word is so deep that we will never touch the bottom on this side of the earth. But Father, we pray today, Lord, that the things that we can know, that we will learn today. That we will take those things which we can know. And that we will examine ourselves. Not only that, as we learn what we can know, Father, I pray that our hearts will become overwhelmed with a desire to reach those who have rejected truth. Those people that we love, those people that are in our families, in our neighborhoods, at work. Lord, that you will give us a desire to reach those that are lost. Father, be with us today, Lord. We pray that you empower us with your spirit, not for our glory, but for you and yours alone. And we pray this today in the name of your beautiful son, Jesus. Amen. Y'all can be seated. As we look at this passage today, we're going to look at groups of verses together. And, you know, it was interesting. I, I believe I said this on Wednesday night. Um, or maybe I, I, I don't quite recall. I remember saying it to someone. Maybe it was to Brother Kevin. But I struggle. Some of my greatest biblical heroes, people that I know personally. Now... I also have other heroes who are preachers uh, that are great students of the word and great teachers. Um, you know, like people, folks like R.C. Sproul, Body Bauckham, uh, John MacArthur, um, and those kind of folks. I also have some, some heroes that I know personally. And two people come to mind immediately, Brother Brooks Nethercutt. And Brother Russell Wright. The reason I bring those two up is because they had opposing views of the end time scriptures. Two guys that loved each other so much that co-pastor, Brother Russell was the pastor, Brother Brooks was his assistant pastor uh, in this very church. And still yet their, their views as far as the, the timing uh, and some of the things that surround the return of Christ. Um, couldn't be more different. 
And I struggle because the Bible is very clear in Revelation that tells us to, to, not, to not close these books up and not read them. And I would be doing you a disservice if I were not willing to, to study the Word and, and present it to you as the Spirit leads us to do so, which is why we're at this passage today. But it's a humbling experience when you know that as you view the end times and the more you read, the more I realize that I just haven't settled on one of those positions as far as the timing. And it bothered me, to be quite honest with you, because when I talked to my, one of my heroes, Brother Russell, or one of my heroes, Brother Brooks, they seemed so sure of their view. And I don't have that. Let's be honest. And maybe you don't want to hear me preach on end times today when I'm just already told you that some of these things, I, ain't, I haven't settled on a position. But I found a quote from someone. R.C. Sproul um, was speaking at a conference, and one of the conference attendees asked the question about which position he held because based on his teaching and writings, they couldn't tell. And when questioned on what his position was, in other words, what argument did, does he align himself with when it comes to end time timing, mainly surrounding the millennial reign of Christ and the return of Jesus? When that will happen, before the tribulation, during or after? This is what he said, and made me feel better about myself. You ever had somebody that, that you esteem very highly and they say something, you're like, I am too, that's awesome. He said this. He says, the reason he doesn't declare a position was because there are strengths and weaknesses in all of the positions. <laughs> but this is RC, you got to know his humor. He says, I can, I'm only certain of one thing, that it's not the dispensational premillennial position. So he rolled out two of the three major arguments as far as the timeline of events. Here's what I know today. If God wanted me to know the exact timing of it, he would have told me so, and you so, and it would be written in the Word. But instead, he tells us to do what? To be watchful, because it will come like a thief in the night. I don't have to declare a position on my view of when Christ will return. I need to declare that He will return. He is coming back. And He will take His church home. Whether that's before the tribulation, during, or after. Whether His millennial reign uh, is a thousand year period at the tribulation. Or it's actually now, which some people believe in an all millennial position, that the, the, the reign, the millennial reign of Christ is actually happening now because the church is here. He established the church and he's reigning in the hearts of those who call him Lord. Which one doesn't matter to me? I know this. He's coming back. I know this. All those who have rejected him will experience eternal damnation and hellfire forever. That I am sure of. 
So today, though, as we look at this passage, there are other things that we need to be keenly aware of and know that these things are going to happen because as things get worse and worse in this world that we live in, there are those who want to start declaring that these things that are happening are God's judgment and all these other things that, that people are starting to declare. People uh, step up and say that they've had some other revelation that has not been given to the church. And so then they have established that, well, God has revealed this to me. Listen, if God didn't reveal it in His Word that we have, then whatever has been revealed to you is probably not God. Because I believe that God has already spoken on the subject and what He wanted us to know has already been declared. But we see that in history of time, there have been people that have come and declared that they know something different. I'll give you one. Joseph Smith. He declared to have a, a different revelation. That God revealed something to him that He hadn't revealed to all the rest of us, but yet just one person received that revelation. Do you realize how many authors are in the Scriptures and yet we can't find one place where the Bible contradicts itself? Written over the span of more than 2,000 years with over 40 authors, it all goes together. But yet there were people that will come and say that God has given them something different or enlightened them in a different way to know things that we can't know. If that was the case, then listen, he wouldn't have just give it to one. Amen? Well, why are you going through all that? Because verses 1 and 2, as we start to look at this passage, is what Paul was writing about that very thing. He says this, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or spoken word or letter seeming to be from us. You see, there were people that were writing and claiming to be Paul or claiming to be one of the other apostles. And they said, look, the day of the Lord has already come. And Paul said, listen, that is not the case. It didn't come from us. This is not God revealing himself to someone else or someone's writing a position. I want you to know and be sure. You see, the church at Thessalonica was a young church. If you look at the first letter, people already had the question about when Christ is returning. And they already had the question about those who had already died, uh, yet in Christ hasn't returned. What happens to them? So in the, in the letter of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 16 through 18, it says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the air with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another. With these words. You see, they were already wondering and upset about what's going to happen. The Lord said He's coming back. And, and so when is He going to come? But what happens to, to my loved one that has already passed on? Are they not going to be raptured up with the church? Are they not going to make it to heaven because they didn't live long enough to see the return of Christ? He said, listen, I don't want you to be uninformed about this thing and realize that when Christ returns... All eyes shall see Him. The dead in Christ are going to rise, and those that remain will be caught up in the air. Encourage one another, He said. 
And I'm encouraged today because I, I, my cousin, we was out to breakfast yesterday with uh, Sal and myself and my dad and my aunt and uncle, which is my, my dad's brother. We all were at breakfast at, at Mountain View yesterday. And I had a cousin that I hadn't seen in quite a while come up to the table and surprise me. And she said that her mother at this point had rejected any more dialysis. She's tired. And she wanted me to know that when her mother was laying out things that she wanted done when she passed, he wanted me to do her funeral. And so she was letting me know that unless God intervenes, that time is going to be soon. And then she said this. You know, it's getting to be to the point where we got more family on the other side than we do on this side. And so when I read that passage in Thessalonians, it encourages me. It encourages me to know that I've already got folks that I love that are on the other side waiting on me, waiting on you. So Paul encouraged them with that letter, but now questions have already arisen again. Other people are saying that they've had some kind of revelation or, or they're writing letters in the name of Paul, the other apostles. And so now the church is, is spun up again. He says, look, I want you to understand these things. And I don't want you easily shaken. You see, church, if we're not careful, we'll be easily shaken Peter said that people would come uh, and, and teach a false gospel, but there would be people with itchy ears that are just wanting to hear what they want to hear. If you go back and read the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, you'll realize that Paul's addressing is that some people have even gotten to the point, well, Jesus must be returning soon, so they went ahead and quit work. They quit work. I'm like, you know what? Jesus is going to come back. I might, as well, I might as well just put this aside. There's no sense trying to advance my career or learn more about my trade. Jesus is going to come back anyway here real soon. There's these people that circulate these letters. They say it's imminent right now. Listen, I'm telling you the coming of Christ is imminent. But let's also face it. It could be another thousand years. Some people say, why? why is Jesus not coming back yet? Why hasn't come? Well, Peter let us know why he hadn't come yet. He said that God is not slack as men count slackness, but instead he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He hasn't returned. He's giving time for those who will come and heed the gospel call. And I don't know about you, but i got family that's lost and when you have family that's lost in our hearts, sometimes we get selfish. We, I want the Lord to come back so I don't have to live this life anymore. Well, listen, if that happens, then the hope for your loved ones is all but gone. Do you really care about yourself so much that you want Him to come back so that you could escape the difficulties that are associated with this life and don't care about those who are around you who don't know Christ, who will land in eternal damnation and hellfire and be tortured forever and ever. Are you really that self-centered? Are you so focused on yourself that you would not care about the souls of those who will be lost forever? An eternity of no hope.
You see, a lot of people think that the worst part of hell is going to be the fire. I'm sure that's a part of it. But it's an eternity with no hope. An eternity to remember all of the invitations that you were given. All of the times that someone spoke of Jesus in their lives. And never any hope of escaping hell. I think that might be the worst part. So Paul's writing, don't be shaken by these false claims. In verses 3 and 4, he says, listen, don't be deceived. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And so he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He said, listen, this, this day... Oh, the Lord is not going to come unless these other things happen first. It's not that Paul is declaring to know exactly when those things are going to occur, but he knows what he's been taught by the Lord and that there are things that must happen. Now, does it mean when people say, I think Christ could return today? Listen, he absolutely could. This is his word. And somehow, you know, when we look at these things, when we start to truly look at what's being said, we realize that you could view certain things that have already happened. Maybe when he was talking about this revealing of the man of lawless, maybe that person has already been identified. Maybe he's alive today and we just don't know his name yet. There is nothing that's prohibiting Christ coming today. But he's telling the church, listen, the day of the Lord is not going to come until these other things happen first. Now, some people think some of these things already happened with the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. under Vespasian, with Titus as the general of the army that came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But it says this, he will not come unless there's this rebellion first. The word for rebellion in the Greek is apostasia. It's where we get the word apostasy, which means a falling away from or a departure. Some people think that departure in this particular case, that means that the church is going to depart and then the tribulation. Some people think that departure is people will depart from the truth. If you haven't noticed, the world is departing from the truth. Amen. Even people who claim to know Christ, people who claim to, to worship Him as Almighty God are departing from the truth and accepting these things which God has called abominable. And yet say that they're okay and that God is love and He accepts these things. And those that hold that, that view and those that, that, that see the Scripture for what it says, that they're absolutely wrong and that there was a time where maybe that was right. But now, listen, but that's not the case under grace. If you haven't figured out the, these abominable type of lifestyles, they were declared in the Old Testament and the New Testament. By the way, could you ever really separate the old from the new anyway? Because God says that He is God and that He does does not change. And the same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New. The only thing that has changed is the covenant that is made with you and I in which we are declared righteous not by the works of the law but by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Paul said, don't be deceived these things. There's going to be a rebellion. 
And not only that, this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. Also known as the son of destruction or son of perdition. This man of lawlessness opposes the gospel in absolutely every way. Not only that, it says here in this passage that he exalts himself over every other type of worship and sets himself up as the leader in the temple proclaiming to be God. You may know him by the term of the Antichrist. Now, there's no direct verbiage that says that this is the same person, but I want to take you back through some other passages this morning. Listen, we're going to dig a little deeper. Part of me thought and argued with God, God, I think this is better as a Wednesday night study. But nevertheless, here I stand, trying to follow what he would have us to read this morning. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel's is in many ways referred to as an apocalyptic writing. Daniel tells us of some of the history of Daniel and his friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. You may know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It tells us of the time that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and took captives back. We see an historical portion, but then we see God revealing to Daniel future events. In Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 24, it says this, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and anoint the most holy place. Know therefore and understand that the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end shall come with a flood. To the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now, that probably sounds confusing. So let me just kind of give you a brief overview of what we just read. First off, a week is, is determined as a seven-year period. There's been a lot of people that go back and has counted these years. Now, the Jewish calendar at the time was a 360-day calendar. So when they go back and try to do all the math as to when they started to rebuild the temple uh, until the temple was then again destroyed in 70 A.D. Um, there's a lot of math involved. The Hebrew calendar had 360 days, and then at the end of however many years it took, then they would add an extra month. So I guess leap year hadn't come to pass yet. 
So a week was considered a seven-year period. There were seven weeks for the decree to build the temple. This is the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, we go back and read um, uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. You'll see that rebuilding of the temple. So he said it's going to be a week, and then you're going to see this rebuilding of the temple for that decree to come about. Then 62 weeks until the Messiah is executed for the people. Right? 62 weeks and anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. This is talking about 62 weeks from the, from the time the temple was rebuilt until the Messiah is give, gives his life. And that's why it said that and shall have nothing. In other words, Christ was executed. Right? And shall have nothing. In other words, he didn't come back at that point and establish a physical type of kingdom. But then it talks about after those 62 weeks, there shall be another week. But then there's this last week, right? 62 plus 7 is 69, right? But then it says, he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This prince of the people. Now, a lot of people think that that being a prince of the people means that he's whoever this Antichrist is, is going to arise and have some kind of Roman descent. And it says, and for this week, he shall make this deal, if you will, with Israel, a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And so when we look in Revelations, we're going to see that this week is the week of tribulation. Right? This seven-year tribulation. Remember, a week is seven years. It's referred to as Daniel's 70th week. So Paul is writing to 2 Thessalonians that, listen, there's going to be this lawless one that is going to come. That this is part of the things that are going to have to happen as this end times. That this lawless one is going to come. It's the same one Daniel's writing about here. This one who's going to make a covenant with the Jews for this one week. But the tribulation is broken up into two halves. Three and a half years of tribulation and three and a half years of even worse tribulation. And so for half of that week, this Antichrist, this lawless one, is going to allow no worship of anything or anyone else but himself. How is that going to happen is what you're probably wondering. How is this one person going to make a covenant strong enough that they would even believe this? Let's turn to Revelation. I'm trying to connect some dots for you. I know what you're thinking. What's this going to do for me when I go to work tomorrow? Trust me. Just stay with me. In Revelation chapter 13, we're going to read verses 1 through 10. I'll let you get there. I hope you're turning. First we read 1 through 10, and then we're going to even read a little bit further down. 
So in Revelation chapter 13, start verse 1, it says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, name, blasphemous names on its head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but his mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Now think about this for a minute. In verse 9 of the opening passage, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by activity of Satan, and with wicked deception for all those apparent... Uh, wait a second, did I read it right? I'm sorry, verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. All right, keep that in mind. Now let's go back. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So this beast that's going to appear is the same as the lawless one. It's the same as the one that Daniel's talking about in chapter 9 that made this strong covenant. How did he make the strong covenant? It's going to appear that he had this mortal wound. In other words, a, a mere mortal person would have died from this wound. But this one, this one did not. And they marveled at the, the fact that he's still alive and that he made it through. And that will be declared as this person has some kind of unbelievable power that is not as a regular human. It says, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. By the way, how many months are in half of seven years? You get the idea, right? How all this ties together? Daniel's 70th week is now seen here in Revelation of what the beast is going to be like, how he's going to end up basically winning over all of these people to believe a delusion. And for 42 months, which is half of the seven and a half years, um, where did I, I lost my place, voices. Exercise authority for 40. Thank you so much. That means somebody's following. Yes! Heather gets a lollipop. Makes me wish I'd have brought lollipops. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and the authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. By the way, it was allowed to make war on the saints. Would there be believers in this time? Who else would be a saint? Verse 8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has a hear, let, ear, let him hear. If anyone is, is to be taken captive... Uh, to captivity he goes, if anyone is to be slain with the sword, the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Some people say the saints are referred to here will be people who will come to, to, to believe in Christ during that tribulation period. But I believe the scripture shows us that they will believe a lie. Those who are not saints already is going to believe this delusion. So I believe there's 
pretty certainly that whoever is alive during this timing of the Antichrist or the lawless one, they're going to have to endure it. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So why is it important to look at these passages that are so difficult that leave us with more questions than answers? Because there are some things we can't understand and we, children, need to understand it. Lest we get caught up with the delusion. I often wondered how many people would be, would be willing to call someone who's not godly an anointed one. And I probably will, might just really tick off some people. But if our last presidency doesn't show you that that can happen very quickly, that people will be willing to overlook things that are sinful to get what they do want because a, this lawless one will do things that agrees with them but yet prove themselves to, to still be sinful and yet will get words and call things like anointed. We've seen it. And so now I, I believe it's going to be a lot easier for people to believe this than what I ever thought before. This person's going to, this person's going to escape some wound that's, that would have normally killed anyone else. And it's going to tell them things that they want to hear. But then after he's captured them, then he's going to turn it over to you worship no one but me. You see this picture? Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's keep going. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was killed. Uh, healed, I'm sorry. It performs great signs and, and even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. There will be those who will die because they were unwilling to worship the beast. In verse 16, it also it causes both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let, let one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number of a man and his number is 666. Paul says, I don't want you to be confused. I don't want you to think that the day of the Lord has come. I don't want you to listen to other people that are claiming to be us or some other people who claim to have some other revelation that, that would give you details that are otherwise not found in the teaching of God. 
Those people that have itchy ears who are willing to hear anything, especially if it makes them feel better about themselves or it makes them feel like there's somehow things are going to be different or there's some special group of people that are not going to have to experience this type of thing. Listen, that kind of teaching has already been on this earth. It's been here for a long time, even in this country itself. There are groups of people here that claim to say they know Jesus, but yet they're the enlightened ones, and they're the ones that's going to be there, and other people are just, they're not ever going to rise to the same level that they have because they have special revelation. It's already here, folks. It's already present. So Paul says there's this lawless one who's going to come. This lawless one, the same one that is referred to in Daniel in chapter 9 and also in Revelations as we've just read in chapter 13. Now Paul says this, Do you not remember that when I was with you I told you these things? Now we don't have record of what Paul taught them. All we have is the two letters he sent. But apparently Paul must have taught them about this more in depth than what we actually have. But then let's go on to verse 6 and 7. I know what you're still thinking. Okay, what part of this am I going to use tomorrow? I'll give it to you. Verse 6 and 7 says this, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So in other words, right now, this man of lawless is being restrained. Or this power of the one that works is being restrained. Satan is now being restrained. Hell is being restrained. We think about today, why does God let bad things happen to good people? We hear that all the time. And the simple fact is the bad things that we see happening around us, these bad things that are going on, is because the hearts of men is wicked. It's because those people rather follow a lie. People rather hear what they want to hear. They'd rather live life according to what makes them supposedly happy. The life that the, to, to be able to live a lifestyle that they think is right in their own eyes. What we see right now is the work of the lawless one in the hearts of men and women all over the world. Why did two planes crash into the World Trade Towers? Because evil people was in the cockpits of the plane. Because they had set their heart on doing what they wanted to do. Listen, and it is the work of the lawless one that is going on in the hearts of men and women all over the world. Listen, hell has not yet been unleashed. There is a restraint that is happening. People wonder, I wonder why God lets so many bad things happen. Listen, I want to let you know today, you ain't seen bad yet. Hell is being restrained and one day coming soon, that cap will be lifted. And that restraint will be loosened. And then we will see a destruction unlike we've ever seen. People want to blame God for bad things that are happening. And what is simply happening are people are buying into the lie that they are the most important thing. Right now there is a term that just actually makes my blood boil. And when people say it, I just want to go up. And I ain't talking about just slapping. I want to ball my fist up and I want to suck them in the snooker. You know what I'm saying? And this is the very thing that actually drives me insane is you live your truth. You live your truth. It's your truth. There ain't but one truth. And it's been declared by Almighty God. Amen? But I love it when they say that. I'm like, oh, live your truth, huh? Live your truth. You live yours. 
Yeah, you live yours, I live mine. All right, so that's okay to live your truth. Yeah. So we should create laws so that you can live your truth. Yeah. We should create laws so you can do what you want to do. Live your truth. They say, yeah. Oh, well, good. Well, Jeffrey Dahmer liked to eat people. Is he allowed to live his truth? Is he allowed to do that? They want to say it's okay to live your truth. What they're saying is you live your truth as long as it agrees with my truth. It's okay if you live your lifestyle as long as it doesn't impede on mine. And then when it does, I'll call you an enemy. And your truth is no longer valid or worth anything. When your truth doesn't match mine, people declare that you have no value. And you have no worth. You tell me how we can live in a country right now where it's your body, ladies. You do as you want. It's your body. You should make that decision. But yet when it comes to a vaccination, it's not your body. Amen? Amen? I'm not saying anybody's bad for getting vaccine or not getting vaccine, to be quite honest with you. It has nothing to do with that. It's simply when the narrative fits their plan then it's okay. It's not your body when it comes to getting a vaccine. By the way, if you're vaccinated and I'm not, I can't get you sick. Unless the vaccine doesn't work. Amen? How could I be putting you in danger if you're vaccinated? Now, I'm not trying to be political. I'm just trying to show you that this is what the world is buying into. Do you not see the fallacy of what's going on before our very eyes, even in our own country? We're free to worship and to speak out unless we speak out against something that they declare to be good. There's only one truth. You see, the longer I live, the more I see how easy this lawless one is going to slip right in. Make everybody believe it's the next best thing. And people are going to buy into it because he's going to declare the things they want to hear. He's going to, to give them and say that he will promise them everything that they want. And that anybody who goes against him is not worthy of living life. That's what's going to happen. The stage is already being set. We're seeing it before our very eyes. How one thing could be declared to be good, but yet you can't apply that rule over here because that would be bad according to them. It's okay to take an innocent life because it's your body. But you're not on this side. What you want for your body is not a good enough reason. We'll declare a mandate because there's no way we could pass a law. Because nobody would agree with it. You see what's happening? This man of lawless is at work. Maybe he's already here and his name's been declared. I don't know. But I can tell you the stage is being set. But the beauty of this is that there is a restraint. 
A lot of times when we think about evil and good when it comes to God, it's almost like Jesus is over here, you know, for him to restrain evil. It's almost like he's got, you know, trying to pull a rope, and he's trying so hard to, to pull this rope. Uh, you know what? Listen. This is what God does. He just holds it back. He's allowing humans on this earth to make decisions with their free will. And much of the evil that gets blamed on God is nothing more than evil hearts of men and women doing what they want to do because they don't care about you because they are the center of their world. And anything that does not bring value to them directly is not worthy of life and is not worthy of their attention. That's what's happening. When we see what we call evil today, evil is the work of Satan in the hearts of men and women. But make no mistake that hell is being restrained. You hear the term, all hell broke loose? It hasn't yet. But it's coming. When God says it's time, a lot of people even want to argue. By the way, Christians will argue over everything. Right? We'll argue over everything. Well, the Bible says that's an and. That's a capital A in that and. It's, that's a, that's a, that ain't a lowercase a. It's a big A. Right? We'll argue over, people want to argue over who the restrainer is. Some people say it's the Holy Spirit. Some people say it's Michael the Archangel. Listen, it doesn't matter who's restraining it because they're restraining it at the command of God. God is the one that is calling the shots. God is the one that's work. And listen, he is holding back. And I love this fact because I want you to understand today that, listen, Satan cannot do anything on this earth without God allowing it. He is not able to operate under his, his own power and do what he wants to do. Listen, he's only allowed to do what God will allow him to do. We see that in the book of Job brought before our very eyes, right? What a, what a wonderful picture that we see in the book of Job and understanding, listen, that, that Satan is just not allowed to do something to you. If God allows it, then there's a purpose for it. And we who say that we trust God have to trust God that even in calamity, even in difficult times, that there has to be a purpose. But there will be coming a time when that restraint is no longer at work. I want to give you a brief, give you a brief reading of what this is going to look like. What will it look like when there is no longer a restraint on hell? Now, when you look, read the book of Revelations, you see starting in uh, chapter 6, you're going to see, start seeing these uh, seven seals. And then in the seven seals, there's seven trumpets, and there's bowls, and there's, it's very difficult. I've been working to try to map some of this out so that I can do a more in-depth study maybe on a Wednesday night or something. Starting at verse 6, at verse 6 of chapter 8, I'm sorry, chapter, Revelation chapter 8. In chapter 8, the seventh seal has come, and then there's seven trumpets. These are the judgments of God. I just want to read you just a little bit of what hell breaking loose looks like. And I guarantee you the next time somebody says, why does God let bad things happen? Oh, you'll be like, uh, you ain't seen bad yet. What you're seeing is the work of man because man hates God. 
Anybody who doesn't love God and love the gospel message is antichrist. Amen? And that's what he's saying. The work of the lawless one, John said that the antichrist is coming. But the work of the antichrist is here. Because everybody who's anti the gospel message is antichrist. Means to be against. Chapter 8, starting at verse 6, it says, Now the seventh angel who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and therefore followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice who flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth, and a blast of other trumpets, and the three angels are about to blow." And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw stars fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and the shaft arose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke of the shaft, and the smoke became, uh, came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on the foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And the torment was like the torment of a... Oh, by the way, did you see that? The seal of God on their foreheads. There are saints present at this point. Just wanted to point that out. <clears throat> Let me see where I... Where did I leave off, Heather? Verse 6. Hey, verse 6 again. What do you know? And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it, for they will long to die, but death will flee from them. The, in appearance, the, the locusts were, were like horses prepared for battle, and their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like woman's hair, and their teeth like the lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots and horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is their and in their tails. And they have as them king over the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past, and behold, two woes are still to come. We only haven't the first woe yet. All right. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, and the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000, and I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision, and those who rode them wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. Uh, by these three plagues, a third of the mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, and for their tails are like serpents with heads. By means of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed with these plagues did not repent of the works of their hand or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and wood which cannot see or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality for their thefts. 
My friends, that's what it looks like when hell breaks loose. It's being restrained. The power of God is restraining. At the command of God, these things were held back until a time that God has prepared. But when we think about evil and earth, we think about things that are being done that we don't like. And we ask the question, why does God let good things, bad things happen to good people when we want to credit God for everything that we don't agree with or that we don't like? And we fail to remember the restraint that God is showing in two ways. He is restraining hell until this appointed time. Aren't you thankful? After what we just read, aren't you thankful he's restraining them? Let me tell you something else he does. He restrains from striking us down for the unholiness that's being, that is being done before him. What great restraint from our loving God because he's not slack as men would count slackness, but he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. The loving restraint of our almighty God is at work holding back the hounds of hell and not striking down those that profane his name. Oh, what a powerful loving God that would do such great work, that would show such great restraint because we deserve for all hell to break loose. We deserve to be struck down because I've sinned against an almighty God, a holy and perfect and just God. I've sinned against him and I've broke in his holy law. But listen, he loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us, to atone for our sins. The propitiation that we discussed on Wednesday night, that substitutionary sacrifice that he made for us, not because we deserve it, but because of his great love. And still yet there are people out there that will reject him and say that he's not worthy of their praise. He's not worthy of their worship because he doesn't do things like they would want them done. Well, Huff, he doesn't strike us down because we are covered by the blood of Christ. Yeah, I get that. But what about all of those who say they know Christ? And yet by their very works, they detest him. And still yet, he hasn't struck them down. But there is coming a time. There is coming a time. How many that you know today will have to endure such torment? This tribulation is coming. The mystery of lawlessness, he said in verse 7, is already at work. Satan is wreaking as much havoc as he can, but he's doing so through the selfishness of God's creation, you and I. 1 John chapter 2, John also wrote about this. He said, children, in verse 18, John, 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. But I want to, there's another verse in here that just really, really shows the power of Almighty God. In verse 8 it says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing the appearance of his coming. See, Paul gets this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. It says, But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Our God is so powerful that not only can he restrain hell, but when we think about God fighting against Satan, it's almost like you got two equal foes. And that's not the case. We see God breaking a sweat, fighting against Satan and the schemes of Satan. And matter of fact, even to the point sometimes when we hear people talk about their lives and they're praying that God would deliver them from whatever. And, and you know, and it's like, you know, Satan's winning. He's not winning. If Satan is winning anything, it's your influence that he's winning. Maybe you didn't catch that. If Satan is winning anything in your life, it would be your influence. But Satan does not win. Not as, only is God restraining all of hell. Not only is God restraining from striking those down, but we know that when he does come, All that my loving, holy, and powerful God has to do is that's my God. I look like a Baptist reject from the Benny Hinn school of preaching, don't I? Waiting for a couple of y'all to fall out. If let the bodies hit the floor, starts playing, I'm out of here is all I got to say. But think about that, would you? Satan is no match for our God. All hell breaking loose that I read to you is God just allowing to have his way. He's finally pulled back the restraint. Have at it. Why? Because that's a part of his plan. God is going to show the earth what it's like to be without God. People act as if God is not working on their behalf. Listen. God is even working on behalf now listen carefully what I'm going to say, even of those who don't love him in his restraint 
of what we just read. Even those who detest him are benefiting currently from his restraint. Matter of fact, there are some that the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that, listen, they'd rather trade the the truth for a lie to even to the point where God says, all right, you want it your way here. And he turns them over to a debased mind because they wouldn't hear of the truth. But even now, those who don't love God, those who detest Him are benefiting from the fact that there is much more evil that can be happening that God is restraining. But one day, He's going to open up His seals of judgment. And He's going to pour His judgment out on the earth, and the earth will see what it's like for God to no longer restrain that which is evil. It's going to be a time unlike we've ever seen before in our lives. I pray that I'm already gone. I pray, listen, I want the premillennials to be right so bad. But as R.C. Sproul said, there's strengths and weaknesses on all those different arguments. There will be saints that will be here during that period. You can't deny that because it's in the written word. Who those saints are, whether there are people that believe, the few that may believe the truth during that time, I don't know. But there's going to be a seven-year period of ungodliness unlike the world has ever seen before because God's going to turn it loose. Verses 9 through 12, we'll kind of sum it up with this. I'll read verses 9 through 12 again. It says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This Antichrist is going to produce false signs and wonders. They're going to think that he's something else. He was able to live through what would have been a mortal wound to anybody else. He's going to do things that make people think that he has all this great power. But his power cannot get anywhere close to the power that God has because Jesus will come. And with the breath of his mouth, he will destroy the wicked. Our God is so powerful that he doesn't have to raise his hand. His very breath has the power to destroy all unrighteousness. But those people who perish refuse to love the truth. So here's a couple takeaways of what we can know today. First off, you know what I learned through all this? God has a plan. His plan also includes salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. But God has a plan. Second thing I learned through all this, even with all that is happening, there's still so much more evil that's being restrained. And I don't know about you, but I've never prayed before with thanksgiving for the restraint that God has until I started this study. 
Then I found myself at my computer out in the garage saying, God, I thank you for your restraining hand. God, I thank you for the power that you have that you've held back so much that I've never had to see in my life. It seems like the last year and a half has been the most trying year and a half of my life. And even go back further about the last five years and dealing with all these health issues and all this stuff that's going on. And sometimes if we're, we, we can get so self-centered that we think, God, why is this happening to me? God, why do you allow this? What, what is going on here? Why are these evil things coming upon us? But when I did this study and this message, I realized that God has so much more restraint. So much more could have happened. So much more will happen. But I think about our loving God and how I'm sure of it, that He's put this hedge of protection around me, just like He has you. That God has had His hand upon my family and your family. And there's so much more that could have happened in our lives. So much more could have come harm, could have come to our lives. Yes, you may be going through difficulties, but there's so much more that have gone on. And I found myself saying, God, I thank you for your restraint. God, I thank you, Lord, for holding back those things, which I haven't seen that you saved me out of. But God, I am absolutely sure today that there are things that you have saved me out of that I won't know until I get to the other side of glory. But you've been at work in my life and you've done great things in my life and you've been holding back the hounds of hell on my behalf and you have put your hedge of protection around me so how can I complain about the few things that he has allowed when I realize that he allowed them for good it's not what most people want to hear but he allows it for good I wonder sometimes how pain can be good. But it is. But you know, I've been to two doctors in the last month, month and a half, that seemed more interested in talking about God's calling on my life than they were about the problems I was having. I'm not saying they didn't try to help. But I've been asked this very pointed question twice by two different doctors in the same office. What made you want to be a pastor? What made you do that? Of course, first I got to qualify and saying there ain't nobody in their right mind ever want to be a pastor. You talking about being delusional. I like to be a pastor. You're stupid. Somebody, one guy, I like to do what you do. Here, have it. I was like, when you know what you're made for, you can't deny it. It's not that I wanted to do this. I had to. It's what makes me feel like I am me. Because when I do the office and I do the job and I'm preaching, I know that I'm where God wants me to be, and it's the only place where you truly find peace and joy, even through calamity. So I told the one doctor, I felt that that's the calling on my life. I couldn't help but to do it. 
Interesting answer. I wonder if them two doctors ask each other about it. But maybe, maybe all the pain, all the sleepless nights, all the stuff, so that somebody else would hear about Jesus and know that his calling is so true and real that you can't help but alter your life in submission to it because it's the only way that you feel at home. Would it be worth it if that was the only reason for all those years? The right answer is yes. Sometimes I don't always say yes. But the right answer would be yes. Have you ever thanked God for his restraining power? You ever thank God for all the things that didn't happen to you? For all the things that he hasn't allowed to come into your life? Because when I read this passage, I can't help but to thank God for his restraining power. Here's another takeaway. The truth of God is the only truth. There will be someone, this lawless one, this antichrist who's going to come, who's going to have the ability to make people think that he has the truth. There's only one truth. Here's another takeaway today. Those who reject the truth will suffer eternally. You see, when I think about that, a lot of times when we think about those who will suffer eternally, we think about the murderers and the rapists and those people who wreak havoc on the lives of other people. But let me tell you who's going to be in hell. Now buckle up. You know who's going to be in hell? Grandmas. Grandpas. Moms. Dads. Brothers and sisters. You see, not every little old grandma goes to heaven. may be the littlest old grandma who made the best biscuits you ever seen and may have loved her children and grandchildren with just absolutely wonderful, amazing love. But if she rejected Christ, in hell she will be. Grandpa may be the kindest, loving old man you've ever seen. Old feeble man walking with a cane, never, doesn't look like he could ever hurt a fly. But yet if he's rejected Christ, in hell he will find himself. Your neighbors, your loved ones, sons and daughters, that's who goes to hell. Anyone who rejects the truth, who would rather believe a lie, they're not worthy. God's grace. Not because you and I were but we were willing to submit ourselves to a holy God and declare that his truth is the truth. And here's another thing I want you to take home as you stand to your feet. 
Quit worrying about when. And be ready. Comes back to that question that we've talked about a lot last year and a half. Are you ready? Are you prepared to meet God? I'm not asking if you attend church. I'm not asking you if you pick up your Bible every day. I'm asking you, is He Lord of your life? Is He your focus? I thought my wife was going to start preaching for a minute. It scared me. She didn't start hacking though, so he's all right. But all she was doing is sharing with you her heart of what we've learned this last year and a half. If I start focusing on me, if I become the center of my world, then surely I've denied him. Because he is to be our focus. So when you go through tough times and when you hear the word like cancer, you lose someone you love, or you're dealing with chronic pain, or you wake up every day and wonder what this day is going to be like, when you have to set your alarm an hour earlier to be, to be able to be out of bed on time, if you allow yourself to focus on you, then you'll be asking, why me? Well, we should be saying, why not me? But we've learned that the only way that we can continue to, to profess our love for God, continue to pastor, and continue to walk, is we had to truly believe it with all that is in us. That regardless Regardless of what the future holds, I don't regret a mile that I've walked for the Lord. It's an old Happy Goodman song. It says, I don't regret a mile that I've traveled for the Lord. And I don't regret a time that I spent in His Word. I've seen the years go by, many days without a song. But I don't regret mile that I've traveled for the Lord. Would you bow your heads?